Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave Leefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. This episode, we take a look at Articles from Compliance Week in March 2022 around the Russian invasion and the response, the sanctions levied by the Biden administration, EU and UK, as well as take a look at uh, previews of the article on FedEx's ESG program in the April edition of Compliance Week, Sports, Compliance 2022, and more. Know you'll enjoy this podcast from the editor's desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week. Look at uh, stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm Tom Fox, your co-host. And I'm Dave Lee Fort, Managing Director at Compliance Week. Uh, as usual, Tom, I'm thrilled to join you today to take a look at some of the things that Compliance Week is following. So in today's episode, we're going to take a look back on our coverage of Russian sanctions and their impact on compliance. Uh, we'll preview an ESG package we're publishing in April. And as always, we'll talk some sports. Well, great, Dave. So, uh, and you, you talked about probably the top topic in compliance in the broader business world right now, which is the sanctions that have been laying down because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What um, what articles did you want to highlight? So it's really not any one article in particular, but rather more of a theme. Because I would say that we have, you know, as you know, these sanctions have uh, have changed and have escalated as this uh, invasion has escalated. So uh, as have the, the challenges facing folks in compliance. And it's, it's really a matter of, of how do you keep up? So a lot of our coverage have been around, you know, some, some strategies to implement and some best practices to, to follow in terms of making sure that you're doing business with the right or rather, you're not doing business with the wrong people or the wrong organization. So it's, uh, I think, this, this, the sanctions that Russia is facing now are of the scale and scope that is really unlike anything that we've ever seen imposed on a major economy. Uh, and not only that, but you're seeing companies evaluating their business decisions and their business decisions regarding Russia, not just from a sanctions standpoint, but also based on their values. So you're seeing a lot of a lot of corporations pull out of Russia entirely, uh, not just because of the sanctions regime, but because they don't want to be associated with Russia. So this is this is sort of a, a moment for uh, corporate social responsibility and uh, just for business as a whole. And, you know, you've seen, you know, I'll point out one in particular, like Papa John's, for example, has decided, they, they decided not to pull out of Russia and they're getting a lot of heat for it. So you're seeing 
public pressure coming uh, on companies that are, uh, you know, you could argue they're putting the bottom line before their values. Uh, but getting back to the, the sanctions bit, it's, you know, with, with the escalations of sanctions has come the escalation of risk and of the importance of due diligence for companies that have any links to Russia. And in that case, you know, any, any, any links to Belarus as well. Uh, so this includes uh, sanctioned persons, sanctioned companies, and that gets back down to uh, knowing the knowing beneficial ownership of your third parties, your vendors, your customers, your suppliers. And that is, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge in, in any, anywhere in the world, really. But now with the escalation of sanctions in Russia, it's more, it's more important than ever to make sure that you are not doing business with the wrong people. So we, we put together a sort of a, a list of best practices of, uh, on how to do your very best to ensure that you are not doing business with any sanctioned entities. So that's, it includes, you know, creating a, a risk map that includes touch points linked to, to Russia, to Belarus, and to some degree Ukraine as well, because you, you, you know, most likely if you're doing business in Ukraine or have a third party in Ukraine, that business has been interrupted to, to a large degree. So I, think, I don't think there's uh, much risk in saying, in saying that. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's mapping out your, uh, your customers, your third parties in geographically to put a, you know, obviously you want to put a special spotlight on those that are in those areas in particular. So and go along with that is undertake the appropriate due diligence. So conduct sanction screenings, uh, you know, make sure you, you keep an eye on the, the FinCEN website, for example. Um, there are, they're issuing alerts, uh, you know, basically uh, quite frequently. I was gonna say nonstop, but it's not quite that, but uh, quite frequently on, uh, alerts and, and red flags on companies and individuals to to steer clear of when doing business because of this this increase in sanctions and you know you're seeing increasingly that the uh the western world or the industrialized world is sort of freezing out russia to a to a large degree and that's the that's been the whole strategy uh behind how to how to sort of put pressure on russia without uh, you know, if you're NATO without lending uh, troops to the cause, which obviously that would, uh, as, as President Biden so eloquently said, uh, you know, that essentially what you're talking about, if you, if you send troops overseas or if you enforce a no-fly zone, that's essentially, you know, starting World War, World War III. Um, so the answer has been these sanctions. And so that has had uh, a tremendous impact on businesses. So back to some of these best practices is you have to make sure it's more important than ever. You need to train your relevant employees, train your relevant business partners uh, where they can find the latest sanctions developments, uh, where, what warning signs to look for. So, you know, accounts payable, for example, accounts, accounts receivable, procurement, sales staff, um, obviously risk management staff, all need to be aware 
of what restrictions are in place and how to raise the red flags to the comp compliance and legal. So you really have to stay disciplined within your organization to, to stay on top of this uh, because it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's very, it's difficult to keep up with it because they are, they have been escalating at such a, um, such a high rate. Uh, so, and then if you're doing an internal review and any sanctions violations are uncovered, it's, you know, it's a matter of say you uncover a sanctions violation and let's, let's say it is uh, unintentional. So right then and there, you, you have to stop, you have to stop doing business with that person or that entity. And depending on which sanctions were violated, there might be a duty to disclose to a regulator. Uh, so make sure you know what your requirements are, essentially. Um, so there are, we've, we've published several stories in the last couple weeks or so that deal with uh, those types of best practices. But um, in a large sense, it's uh, just from a, a corporate social responsibility standpoint, um, it's been uh, refreshing to see how many companies have sort of stepped up and taken themselves out of Russia and made a, uh, made a decision based on their values and not on the, not on the bottom line. Um, but between, you know, between the, the, I guess, the global freeze-out of uh, Russia and uh, these, this heavy sanctions regime, it's very, very difficult for companies that are trying to do business in the right way to actually stay walking that line. Even if you have the best intentions, you, you might, you still, there is still the onus to make sure that you're doing the right thing. So, Dave, let me pick up on one of the points you mentioned, which was in addition to corporations choosing values, the public pressure. And it's been suggested that uh, the sustainability or social prong in ESG has actually played a part in uh, companies uh, pulling out of Russia, or at least uh, stakeholders putting pressure on those um companies. Is that something, and, and that seems to me to be a, a theme that you've touched on on several of our episodes. You're seeing more and more this ESG uh, component coming into play. Is, is, uh, is that something you specifically identified in, in some of the Compliance Week reporting uh, in March? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's something that we've been following very closely. Which, which companies have made those decisions to, to pull out which companies notably have not, and what what kind of public pressure those companies have faced. So, it's I think we're we're in an age now, and I don't think there's really any arguing this at this point. Where uh, people, the the public in general, is more attuned than ever to uh, holding businesses accountable for their actions, because every business now has a uh, a core purpose. They'll have a, a mission statement. They'll have a statement of values. And more than ever, the, the public at large and shareholders and really stakeholders too. So we're talking about employees, we're talking about shareholders. We're talking about the communities that they serve, the communities that they do business in, uh, are holding these companies accountable for these things. And if they're not making the decisions on their own, making a values-based decision, 
they're, then the pressure is coming from the public for them to make that decision for them. So I think that's, that's a really, uh, it's been really encouraging to see this sort of, I want to call it, a, a, I guess, a system of checks and balances so that if the company's not doing the right thing for the right reasons, maybe they'll do it because there's a little bit of, a, of public pressure behind it and because their stock price is being impacted by it. Um, so that's been really encouraging to see. And we've we followed that aspect of the story uh, very closely. Dave, uh, you mentioned in your opening remarks, uh, you might give us a teaser perhaps on some of the things that uh, you're looking at uh, putting out in April. You mentioned uh, ESG. What do you have for us? Yeah, so uh, well, a couple of things. So first off is, uh, well, first and foremost, we're, we're all anxiously awaiting the SEC's public meeting on Monday to talk about their uh, the, the SEC's proposal on what kind of a framework are we going to be looking at at disclosing uh, ESG-related risks. So this is something that uh, Chairman Gensler has been hot on since he took the position. It's something that we know that the SEC has been working on. They've told us they've been working on it. Uh, we know generally that Chairman Gensler faces, sorry, favors a uh, disclosure regime that is consistent and it's, and it's not, uh, uh, not one that sort of allows companies more wiggle room on what to disclose and how to disclose it. So, uh, so this, that will be interesting to see play out. Uh, at the same time, um, Compliance Week, we're working on a, uh, a case study looking at one particular company's ESG journey over the last five years. So we're, we're taking a look at FedEx. So FedEx has notably indicated that they're going to be um, uh, carbon neutral by 2040. So for FedEx, that is quite a, you know, FedEx being a shipping and logistics operations with thousands and thousands of vehicles around the world and planes and, and uh, so climate is, so FedEx has made climate change and their impact on climate change a, a centerpiece of what they're doing in terms of their ESG efforts. So they more than, uh, I would say more than, a, more than many companies are being very, they're being pretty transparent about their efforts and they're being transparent with Compliance Week about how they came, how they developed their ESG program. Like for example, how they came up with the year 2040. So you hear a lot about greenwashing and about companies making decisions in a vacuum to say, We're, we pledge to be carbon neutral by whatever year. And a lot of times it's uh, maybe a CEO and maybe a uh, chief communications officer or PR executive that is driving that those statements. And it's and it's to obviously to show the public that hey, we care about we care about the environment. We're we're going to do our best here. But when you when you put it in writing like that, when you make a pledge like that, you need to have the expectation that you're going to be held accountable to that. So, a lot of times, uh, and this is this is becoming less and less the case now. A lot of times, companies are making those statements without thinking about. Uh, okay, what is, do we have a realistic plan on getting there? It's one thing to put 
put a plan on paper that, you know, pledges that we're going to cut emissions by, you know, 5% each year up until 24, whatever, whatever it is. It's one thing to put that on paper, but when you when it gets time to for budget planning season and you realize that that 5% cut in emissions is going to what that's going to cost on paper, then uh, that becomes there, there becomes a different set of decision makers that are making those decisions. So when you don't have that alignment of your your outside PR messaging with your internal decision making, then you get into trouble. Uh, where FedEx has done it right is they have uh, they've centralized it and they've made ESG and in particular climate change one of their core uh, one of their core tenets and they baked it into to all of their decision making. So we we're, we we're engaging with uh, their chief compliance officer, their chief sustainability officer, uh, and we're conducting one of our reporters, Aaron Nicodemus. Um, has conducted several interviews with them and we're going to have a, I think it's a five part series on exactly how FedEx is doing this, what they, how their process started back, uh, I think it was five or six years ago when they first came out with their, sorry, 2016, so six years ago, their first sustainability report and where they're at today. So it's sort of taking us along on that, on their ESG journey. Um, so we, we have that case study coming out uh, in early April. That's going to be uh, something to watch and something that other practitioners and other companies are going to be able to learn from. Uh, we also have a, a module learning that will be available for all Compliance Week members on, uh, I won't call it an ESG primer, but it's a, a look at what, how do you define ESG if, you are, if you're working in compliance and uh, you need to, and you're part of a decision-making process that involves um, any kind of climate disclosures or uh, corporate social responsibility initiatives or anything related to corporate governance. So it's sort of a, a primer on these are the main things you need to know. These are the these are the guidelines, the best practices guidelines you need to follow. And you know, pretty soon we'll have to update that with uh, what the SEC mandates. Um, after a uh, an expected comment period on that, and uh, so it'll be a bit before those are um, those are sort of finalized. But until then, you know, there's there is you know that ESG is not a topic that's going away anytime soon, and we're uh, we're all over it with reporting on the SEC meeting on Monday, uh, the FedEx case study launching in early April, and shortly after we'll have a. ESG training module. So uh, CW members will have all of those to look forward to. Well, Dave, it is, and we're recording this in late March, and I think that there's lots of momentum and enthusiasm building up for Compliance Week 2022. I saw an article this week about the top 10 reasons that you should attend Compliance Week 2022, but I wanted to maybe ask you, what are some of the top reasons uh that either you think people should um, attend Compliance Week 2022, or perhaps conversely, what are uh, two or three of the top things that you're really looking forward to? Yeah, so we, I'll say this, we are super excited about being back in person for the first time in three years. It's been, uh, it's been a long time. And it's, we are, we are so looking forward to it. We've, we've, we've seen a ton of excitement around 
people wanting to get back together uh, again for the for, I mean for the networking piece. That's 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 the thing that I myself am most looking forward to seeing people that I've talked to on Zooms and corresponded on dozens of emails with that I haven't seen face to face in three years. That people that I normally see at at this annual event that I'll get to see and interact with and have a couple beers with again. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the, the networking aspect and just the just sort of just being back together with, with people in, in that type of a, of a setting again. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I know that a lot of other people are looking forward to that. And then, you know, that's to say nothing of the, of the content. I think we've, I think we've programmed a, uh, a pretty great agenda uh, this year. So, I mean, I think I've mentioned before, we will have two, two SEC uh, commissioners, um, Allison Heron Lee and Hester Pierce, that will be speaking as part of our Tuesday morning keynote. So that the event starts May 16th, uh, runs through the 18th, so, that, so day two. So May 17th will be uh, when we'll have commissioners Lee and Pierce uh, talking together on stage. And as you know, they both have... Uh, contrasting viewpoints on a lot of issues. So that's going to be fun to watch them go back and forth in that type of environment. And it might also be one of these last uh, public speaking um, opportunities as a commissioner, because she's going to be leaving the SEC, I think, in June. So um, so that might be one of the final opportunities um, that she'll be speaking in public as a commissioner. Uh, we, we have, you know, there is a, we have a special Women in Compliance Brunch that takes place Monday morning. We have what we're calling a, uh, a compliance think tank session where we're handpicking about a dozen uh, senior level compliance executives from uh, important or significant companies from around the world that are getting together in a room for three hours to talk about some big picture uh, big picture topics like the what is the I won't say the I guess the evolving role of the compliance practitioner. So with more and more being thrown compliance's way or putting on compliance's plate, is that a is it a positive? Is it a negative? Is there not enough attention being paid to uh, supporting the compliance practitioner? Do you, is the role, uh, is, are we truly seeing an evolution of the role in general? Or is this, you know, or, or are we seeing more compliance support functions being created? So we're, there's going to be a, a really good discussion around that. Uh, we're, compliance Week is going to be in the room with that, up with those folks. And we'll be writing up a, a comprehensive, uh, comprehensive takeaways from their, uh, from their conversation. So we're super excited about that. Uh, obviously, we'll be talking about the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its impact on the business world as it relates to sanctions and corporate social responsibility. Uh, and, you know, in we're talking about May, which is still, you know, I think it's eight, eight weeks away. Uh, so we'll see where, where things are at at that point. Um, uh, but in any case, it'll still very much be top of mind for, uh, for a lot of folks. Um, we'll have various sessions related to ESG. Uh, we have someone that is going to be speaking with us virtually from Hong Kong about 
the impact of human slavery. Uh, we have uh, we have the John Kerry Rue, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who broke the Theranos story wide open and was the author of Bad Blood. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes had she had her trial. She's been sentenced. Or sorry, she has her trial. She had her trial. She was found guilty. She has yet to face sentencing. So one of the things that I'm interested in uh, hearing from John Kerry about is what what does he expect from the from the sentencing and what kind of message uh, is is it going to send? Because for a lot of practitioners, this uh, this Theranos example is the I don't know the the Enron of this generation I would say, and so the punishment of Holmes will see at least in part just how much teeth the um, you know when, when the DOJ says for example that we are looking to come down hard on individuals in particular that are uh, convicted of things like fraud uh, for example like like um, Elizabeth Holmes was uh, we'll see if there's any teeth to those to that statement so I think and I want to see what uh, what John's perspective is on that. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, so it's really, and then, you know, the one thing I didn't mention is our opening keynote is going to be uh, a woman named Karen Kenny, who she uh, helped to co-found, uh, I think it's the Johnson & Johnson Leadership Institute. And she co-authored a book about leading with character. Uh, so it's about how to lead ethically in an ever-changing environment. And that's really the theme of the, of the conference in general. If there's one through line that uh, will be common throughout, it's that. It's ethical leadership in an ever-changing environment. And that's, you know, that's really what uh, Karen Kenny is going to, is going to put a spotlight on. And I've, I've heard her speak in the past and she's really good at putting, uh, putting things in perspective. I'll say that. It's, it's about putting your own life in perspective, your own role in perspective, and how to how to ensure that you're you're always making the the right decisions for the right reasons, and you're sticking with your values. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole lot a whole lot of other reasons to attend, but uh, those are the things that I am in particular looking forward to. So, Dave, um, now let's turn to some sports issues. And the thing I wanted to start with is hopefully our audience knows you're a recovering sports journalist and you've been a sports journalist <laughs> in the city of Boston and uh, Boston's had some great sports writers that have uh, both uh, been sports writers in Boston and then gone out to the wider U.S. Uh, uh, sports media as well. And one of those is Jackie McMullen. And so I wanted to ask you if you could maybe reflect a little bit about what uh, Jackie meant to the uh, perhaps the Boston sports scene. And then as she moved into ESPN and some other broader national roles, what she meant, she was certainly one of the uh, first female sports journalists. And uh, my reason is she's starting a podcast. And so uh, yeah. it's her first podcast, but I really wanted to maybe ask you to, to give us your thoughts on Jackie McMullen. I, uh, there's nobody I respect more in this business than Jackie. And I had, I had the privilege of working with her, both with the Boston Globe, uh, 
and later at ESPN. And she is truly the most talented, unique journalist that I have ever worked with. And I say that, you know, for, for a number of reasons, but it's primarily because she, and I'll give you a few, uh, a few examples here, but the way that she interacts with athletes is a way like in this, in this day and age, it's hard. It's difficult. If you are a journalist covering a team to truly get close to an athlete, because you have a very limited amount of time in the locker room, you, you know, sometimes they're, they're now meeting with the media over zoom. It's hard to get athletes or coaches one-on-one -on, -one on the side, but I'll say this about Jackie is that she is not only persistent, but she is, she brought a very, uh, a human element to, to it because when her, when you see her, I've seen her interact with athletes in a locker room and she's not, she's not walking up to, uh, Jason Tatum, for example, and saying, uh, so, you know, you went 14 of 20 from the floor tonight. Uh, what was going right for you? Like, you know, she wasn't asking those questions. She was like, Jason, how's your, how is your family doing? How have you, uh, how have you been adjusting to life in the NBA? Like, like she would, she would humanize people or athletes in a way that, that I've never seen from anybody else. And as a result of that, she would, I mean, these athletes would, uh, they trusted her. Everybody liked, everybody likes Jackie. Everybody trusts Jackie. And so, the, and as a result of that, Jackie's conversations, when, when, you, when they actually get down to the, uh, I won't say the X's and O's, because that's not really Jackie's specialty. She likes to get at the human part of the athletes. Uh, when athletes have an interview with Jackie, it, they are, I find that they're willing to tell her things that they're not willing to tell anybody else. Like you could, uh, you could be like, like just take me for example. I, I was, I was an editor, but I was a sometimes reporter, and I was not a great reporter. I'll be honest about that. That's fine. I'm, I can live with that. So my interview with Jason Tatum would be very much the canned, you know, tell me about, you know, how it felt out there tonight or whatever. So, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that when Jackie talks to an athlete, she's able to pull out of that athlete a lot more. Uh, their athletes open up to Jackie in ways that they don't open up to any other person in the sports media business. And that's why I think it's great that she has a podcast. This should have happened 10 years ago. Honestly, Jackie is the perfect person to have a podcast because if she's, if she's sitting down with anybody, it could be, you know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be a, a Michael Jordan or a Charles Barkley or whoever. It could be anybody. She could pull out interesting stories and authentic reactions from anybody because everybody is comfortable around Jackie. It's just how she, how she carries herself. And, you know, I'll, I'm going to a quote. I don't know who said this, but I saw it when she, she retired from ESPN a few years ago. Uh, and yes, Jackie was a, Trailblazer. She was the one of the. She was the first female to win the Kurt Gowdy Award, which is a, a media award for in the uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame. And she is. She's absolutely a trailblazer for for female sports journalists everywhere. But I find that this this quote here from 
uh, I think it was one of her bosses at ESPN, is telling. Because the quote is, Jackie is a trailblazer. Oh, my, just as I'm saying this, sorry, my computer froze. Uh, so Jackie's a trailblazer, not because she was one of the first women covering sports or the NBA. Rather, she's a trailblazer because people talked about her without mentioning sex or gender. So she sort of, she transcended that. Uh, and she still does. So I'm, I'm super excited about listening to her podcast. I still, uh, I still keep in touch with her from time to time, but she is very much, uh, that's the other thing about Jackie is that she would take sometimes years at a time off to, to just for family time. Uh, and that was something she was always, she sort of set a really great example for some of her peers in the business that, hey, you know what, you can do this. If you want to be a parent and take a few years away, if you can afford to do that, uh, then it's okay to do that. And you can come back and you can still be great. Um, so Jackie was the, the personification of that. And I think there are, if you asked, I don't know, if you asked 50 people in sports journalism today who they most admire, uh, I think you'd get a a fairly substantial percentage of them would say Jackie Mack. Wow. So I'm going to put a link to her new podcast in the show notes. Uh, I'm like you, I can't wait for it. It's uh, years overdue. I guess, Dave, the, the thing that struck me in the interviews I've heard with her are a couple of things and you touched on them both. One is she continually gives advice for younger reporters on the craft of journalism. Yeah. She talks about uh, what you have to do, how you have to do it, and how to do it even in the world of today, as you said, which may be a Zoom call, as opposed to being in the locker room uh, like uh, her generation was able to. Uh, the second thing is yeah. uh, you also touched on was the family aspect. Um, she played basketball in college, and so she's had a love of sports for a long time, but her, I think her daughters played as well. And she would share about uh, doing exactly what you said, taking some time off and spending time with their daughters and kids and being a mother and in the middle of being one of literally the top sports journalists in America. So she personalized sports in a way that few writers can. And uh, she's just a great treasure and asset, really, I think, in the United States. And you know what you, know, yeah. what you said reminded me. I've seen her on multiple occasions in locker rooms. You, you might see sometimes the athletes, they'll, uh, if they're angry or whatever, they might, they might shout down a reporter or just treat a, treat a reporter disrespectfully. So when Jackie saw that happen, she would not, not make a public display, but she would make it a point to go to that athlete after the fact and say, you know what? Uh, you didn't treat that reporter back there very, very nicely. You didn't treat them very respectfully. So I just want to let you know that I saw that. And so she was, she sort of like policed the athletes and she stood up for, uh, she stood up for reporters everywhere. And you're right. It was mostly the, it was primarily the younger generation of reporters and people with not, not that much experience. And um, so she was, she was a mentor to, to many of them. Next up, Dave, uh, we've got some great basketball happening, uh, both on the college level and on the NBA, as we've got, uh, I think, three weeks left in the NBA season. I wanted to uh, maybe ask you about your Celtics, because 
I think we had this conversation in December and you were not very high on them, but uh, they've really <laughs> seemed to have turned it around. I'm, I, you know, I can't say they'll make the finals this year, but they can certainly be competitive in the East in the playoffs. How are you feeling? Yeah. So that, that's exactly right. Like, like if you, if you go back even, I don't know, a month and a half ago, they were a 500 team. They would win, they would win two, they would lose two. It was, it was, and they had been a 500 team for, at that point, about, you know, 18 months. So it was getting a little bit frustrating, but they are, they, they put it together. I don't know if it was the, their new coach, uh, Doka, that finally um, uh, started listening more to him, or if it's, you know, Marcus Smart, their point guard being sort of buying into a playing less selfish basketball or the development of a couple of young players, but it's all clicking right now. They're, so I just right before this podcast, I looked at the at the numbers. So they're an NBA best seventeen and three in the last twenty games, and they're they're still, you know they you know they started at five hundred. They were five hundred for a long time, but now they're the hottest team in basketball. They are the number four seed in the East. They, I, I'm guessing they're going to eventually pass the Sixers to get to the number three seed. They could even get as high as number two. And this this seventeen and three record is not. Uh, it's not a bunch of chumps that they're beating. Like this, this, this includes a, a win over the Warriors just the other night. They've beaten the Nets twice. They've beaten the Sixers, uh, but I think they've—I mean—they've lost to the Pistons. But that's—that's uh, that's more an outlier. Um, but that all of that said, you know, at the end of the day, if you ask me, are they—is this a team that can contend for the NBA title? And I would still say no. Unfortunately, I think they're a piece or two away. Uh, I don't think they're better than the Bucks. I don't think they're better than the Heat. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's encouraging and they're still young and they're still, you know, Jason Tatum still hasn't hit his peak yet. Uh, I don't think Jalen Brown has hit his peak yet. So uh, I, I still think that they're, there's still a ton of growth there to be had. So this is not the end, but I don't think that this is a title contending team. Do you, would you make an argument otherwise? You know, I'm not sure they're a title contending team, but I do think they can play a big role in the Eastern playoffs. And I think um, they can knock off um, maybe with the exception of perhaps the Bucks. I think they can be competitive yeah. with anyone and, uh, you know, as we both know, once you get in that seven-game series, literally anything can happen. So if you can put yourself in that position um, and, you know, somebody goes down with an injury or something uh, on the opposing team, you you can position yourself to, to take it up to the next level. Uh, but the, I guess the turnaround is what uh, has impressed me the most. And this kind of streak they're on – you know, you can go into if they can sustain this streak and go into the playoffs this hot. Uh, I sure would want to face them in the first two rounds. Oh yeah, so I mean, I would say I would pencil them in to get definitely get through the first round, and if they get past the second round, I consider that gravy after that. So I would love to see that happen. So you're looking at potentially a second round matchup with a team like the Sixers or a team, perhaps the Bucks, and that's where, you know, like you said, I think there's trouble. I don't think they have an answer for Giannis. Uh, but, you know, you never, you're right, you never know. You get an injury here or there, 
to get a couple of breaks. Uh, but I don't think they're, this is a title contending team, unfortunately. However, it is going to be fun. They're a team that's, that's fun to watch right now because they, they play a fun brand of basketball. And you know, there, there was a lot of infighting earlier this year. And it was just, it was just sloppy. They would be so, they were so inconsistent night in, night out. But now they're playing confidently. It's, they're a fun team to watch. You actually, you know, enjoy, you know, looking on the schedule, saying, oh, look, there's a Celtics game tonight. Maybe I'll, I'll watch the second half. Uh, whereas earlier this year, it was like, oh, Celtics are on. All right. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll watch Netflix. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm very much looking forward to the playoffs. Uh, because I think they got a chance to, like I said, anything past the second round, I think is gravy. I don't think they get to the finals, but, uh, I would love to be proven wrong. And for our final topic, maybe we could say a few words on something that really surprised me, which was the owners in major league baseball and the players association were able to work out their differences enough that, uh, uh we're going to have a abbreviated spring training and then some real baseball. Uh, was, did that surprise you, or did you think when you put billionaires together with millionaires, somebody would wake up and say, let's work this out? So it surprised me, too. I'll be honest. I, I thought this was going to be a truncated season. I thought that it was going to take the cancellation of a certain number of games to get the, the players eventually to – I thought the players were going to be the ones to, uh, that, that were going to blink first in this case. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly very glad that there's going to be a full season. However, did this, was this necessary? Did, like, I, I think personally that if both sides were honest with themselves three months ago and said, okay, let's, let's play this out. What is, the most, what is the most likely scenario? Like what both sides give a little bit, right? As in any negotiation. They could have worked. They, the, the deal that they came back with is not dissimilar from where they started, I would say, uh, meaningfully. So what, what, why I mention that is because over that time period, it was I think you and I were very much the, I guess, speaking for most baseball fans in the sense that there was a a great deal of disgust and a lack of confidence that these sides could work out a deal. Um, they ended up coming to their senses and they had a deal, but I guess my, my frustration is that they could have come up with the same deal three months ago and we could have avoided this and we could have got a real MLB off season, which is always fun. We could have had a real spring training and, uh, yeah, we're going to get a full season and I'm looking forward to that, but it's, I don't know. I just, I just still have a lot of, uh, a lot of disgust and there MLB is baseball is slowly losing me. I think <laughs> I was uh, stunned. I heard a statistics on a podcast earlier this week and there is an audience of 81 million people who watch esports on television. That's people playing esport games. Uh, the baseball audience yeah. is seventy-nine million, and I think that tells you all you need to know. And it's a whole lot longer and a whole lot slower. Up. Yeah. You know, I'll say this: I have a fifteen-year-old son and who was one of those eighty-one million who watches esports, and he will not watch a baseball game. If I turn on a baseball game, he leaves the room. It's like, oh, this is boring. It's too slow. 
So yeah, yeah um, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty telling. Yeah. Well, Dave, uh, as always, it's been great. So uh, I wanted to thank our audience for joining us. I'm Tom Fox. And I'm Dave Leeford. Thank you again, Tom. And I hope to see everybody in May. This is Tom Fox again. Listeners to this podcast can get a $200 discount to Compliance Week 2022. I've linked to the registration site and the discount code FOX200 in the show notes. I've also listed to Jackie McMullen's new podcast, Icons, and some Compliance Week articles, the case study by Allie McDevitt on the ransomware attack. Hope you'll join Dave and I again next month where we take a look at some of the top articles in Compliance Week, talk some sports, and generally try to save the world. This is Tom Fox. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. you are interested in how ESG intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.